0: Robots Radio presents. In
1: 1939, director Victor Fleming and star Judy Garland invigorated the silver screen with a dash of Technicolor
0: and a healthy dose of charm. In 2019, we finish out a trio of expensive Irish whiskeys. The film is The Wizard of Oz. The whiskey is Red Breast 15. And we'll review them both. This is the the Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1939 film, The Wizard of Oz. Brad, I don't know if it's necessary for me to ask you this, but every week I ask you, have you seen the movie The Wizard of Oz prior to this viewing?
1: Bob, does the Film and Whiskey Nation know what the word viscous means?
0: (laughs) That is a hearty yes, my friend. Yes, Bob, I have seen The Wizard of Oz before. I was terrified by it as a child. As as were we all, Brad. And that's what's going to make this episode interesting, I think, is that for a lot of people, The Wizard of Oz wasn't just a movie from their childhood. For a lot of people in America and across the world, The Wizard of Oz was the very first film they can remember seeing. This is a movie that taught a lot of us how to watch a movie, what a movie could be, how to follow the plot of a movie. In a lot of ways, this movie was like our teacher for cinema. And so I think it's going to be really hard for me, at least throughout this episode to separate the fact that all of us have such a connection to this movie from what we've kind of made our job to look at this movie with a critical eye. I don't know if you have that same tension as I do, but that's kind of what I'm coming into this with.
1: Well, as you were talking about this movie, you know, being iconic for our childhood and how it really helped teach us how to watch movies and understand plot and dialogue and all that. The main thing that I could think of was that in the same way that like a kindergarten teacher force feeds the kids how to learn the alphabet. So Victor Fleming force feeds (laughs) us the plot Of Wizard of of Oz. Of the Wizard of Oz. This is probably one of the least subtle movies I have ever watched in my life, Bob.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that I want us to avoid, and I don't think that you'll do it, Brad, because we've addressed this before. I think this movie could really easily fall victim to that argument that people have, which is, well, it's a kid's movie. It's supposed to be on the nose. It's supposed to be over the top. It's supposed to be cheesy because that's just not the case. There are movies that are geared towards children out there that do have these levels of complexity and subtlety to them. And you're right, Brad. This is just not one of those movies. And so I think that as we get into talking about The Wizard of Oz, when we have things that are legitimate complaints or or f- things we see as flaws in the movie – You can't just attribute that to, well, it's a movie made for kids. A flawed movie is a flawed movie, no matter who the intended audience is.
1: I would totally agree. And I can tell that you and I might be on the same page that The Wizard of Oz is a flawed movie in a lot of different ways. And
0: I'm kind of curious to hear why you think that, Bob. So, Brad, that's a great question. And I've been thinking about it a lot. And I think that when a movie is as popular as The Wizard of Oz... And it is a popular movie. I think when you're this familiar with a movie, I think that sometimes we can confuse familiarity with quality. And I started thinking back to the debates we had about Star Wars and the debate we had about Forrest Gump, because those are two movies that are also so familiar with audiences that it's really hard sometimes for us to kind of divorce the fact that we know every line, we know every beat of the story, and we hold it so near and dear to our hearts from asking the honest question, is this actually a great movie? Because sometimes when a movie means so much to us, and it's been such a big part of our lives, it gives us the warm fuzzies every time we watch it. I think sometimes we just shut off the critical part of our brain, and we don't think much about the actual quality of the movie. And so as I watched The Wizard of Oz this time, yeah, I was familiar with everything that was happening. I I love so much of what happens in this movie, but I also couldn't tear myself away from the fact that just because I am familiar with everything that happens in this movie doesn't actually make it a great film. Honestly, Bob, I
1: think you bring forth a lot of really good points. And before we go any further, we might want to delve into... The greatest section of any podcast known to mankind, which is Brad Explains.
0: Yeah, I think we should go ahead and do that. Brad, will you explain to our listeners who clearly have never seen the film before what (laughs) what the plot of the film The Wizard of Oz is?
1: I'm going to be honest with you, Bob, as I'm watching this movie, as much as Victor Fleming was forcing the narrative plot you know, into the audience's brains. I think he had to do that because this movie literally makes no sense. There's a bunch of witches and some of them are good and some of them are bad. And for some reason, her house falls on a witch and kills her. And then those ruby red slippers appear on Dorothy's feet. And Glinda is just like, now here is some plot you need to go do this thing. Don't worry. She doesn't have power over you, even though she's going to kill you later in the movie, or at least try to. I just, I, I'm, I'm coming out very early, Bob. I hate this movie.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, I'll say this. I don't hate the movie, but I'm really glad you're getting at some of this stuff now. And I I was going to save it and drop it all as a, as a bomb in the analysis section of our podcast. But I think you're getting at something really important. So, If you don't mind me kind of hijacking Brad Explains for a minute, I do think we should we should attempt to give some explanation of the plot of this movie. So so let me jump in as as Bob explains for a minute. So The Wizard of Oz is a movie about this young girl named Dorothy Gale, who is kind of forgotten and ignored by everyone in her life. She lives on a farm in Kansas where everything is dull and dreary. Uh, And the only person that she really cares for isn't even a person. It's her dog, Toto who apparently is up to no good and causing mischief, and the local mean lady, Miss Gulch, uh, says that she wants to have Toto destroyed. And Dorothy decides to run away from home. Uh, She has a change of heart, decides to go back home, and as she goes back home, there is a tornado that happens. Dorothy runs into the house looking for her family. She gets knocked on the head, as Brad said, by a window, and the rest of the film is her imagining herself in this faraway land called Oz and she learns a life lesson and she gets sent back to Kansas or she wakes up from her dream. And the life lesson of the film is that there's no place like home. And Brad, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a hundred percent with you on the fact that I cannot make heads or tails of what this movie's supposed to be about. I don't understand what the moral of the story is. And like, I can quote to you, there's no place like home. But I don't think it actually makes sense in the context of the movie. Judy Garland's character, Dorothy, runs away from home, not because she, like, is looking for greener pastures, but because someone's going to come try to kill her dog. Like, the reason she says, let's run away, is because she's trying to protect her dog. She has a change of heart and decides to go back home, and then the whole dream sequence in Oz is supposed to be, like, a fantastical retelling of what we've already seen as she learns this lesson about the people in her life that care for her and how she should go back home and at the very end of the movie she tells glinda the good witch like and i'm paraphrasing you know if i ever want to look for greener pastures again i only have to look as far as my own backyard
1: what have you learned dorothy Wasn't enough just to want to see Uncle Henry and Auntie M. And it's that if I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard. Because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with.
0: And that makes no sense because her character wasn't looking for greener pastures to begin with. It wasn't like she was running away to like be a star on Broadway. I just, I don't understand why Dorothy needed to learn a lesson in this movie. It, it, it just really doesn't make any sense to me.
1: Well, and you're forgetting a key part, that the reason she goes home in the first place, right before the tornado, is because she meets this creepy dude on the road who's like a fortune teller, but yeah. he's just kind of some middle-aged man who's like, oh, I see your aunt, and she's dead. And I see her uncle and he's scared. And 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 so she's like, oh, no. And I'm like, really? How many fortune teller kooky old guys are roaming around the Dust Bowl in the middle of the Great Depression telling young girls their
0: fortunes? Well, so What was that all about? I actually thought that was one of the most believable things in the whole movie, to be honest, because when you think back to when this story is supposed to be set, which is like the late 1800s. I mean, you've got people going all over rural America in these buggies that are selling them elixirs and, you know, early versions of Coca-Cola that have (laughs) hallucinogenic drugs in them as some sort of medicine. So, like, having a huckster in town doesn't seem like it's that far-fetched to me. And so, like, of all the things in this movie that I could take issue with, like, that, that was not one of them for me.
1: Huh. So I'm not going to lie. I 100% thought that this movie was also set in the Great Depression. You know, it was made in 1939. I thought it was set in like 33, 34.
0: I mean, it might be. But the very first thing you see in the movie, they put this title card up that talks about how the story of the Wizard of Oz has been around for 40 something years. And so, I don't know, maybe it's set in 1939. Maybe it's set in 1899. Either way. I, I have bigger fish to fry when it comes to things I don't like about this movie.
1: Well, let's get to it, Bob. Uh, I guess a good place to start might be with the performances. So was there any performances that you had in mind that really stood out to
0: you in The Wizard of Oz? Brad, I'm not going to lie. I actually really liked everyone in this movie. I do think that the whole movie is overacted. I do think that the the whole film is like at this heightened sense of emotion And I think if you really wanted to nitpick Judy Garland's performance as Dorothy, you could uh, because I think she's supposed to be playing a character who's like 11 years old and she's 16 years old. And so sometimes her little girl act does come across that way. But the problem for me is that I cannot separate how much I love Judy Garland from being critical about this performance, because if I'm honest with you, I think Judy Garland might actually be my favorite movie star of all time and everything she does with over the rainbow makes up for any other sins she commits in the course of this movie to me so brad maybe you're maybe you're better qualified than i am to speak to judy garland in this movie
1: i'm sure that she was meant to come across this way but she is a very angry young girl and granted, I get it. Like, she's kind of overlooked on the farm, and this old hag is trying to kill her dog. <laughs> but Judy Garland still, throughout the whole movie, kind of comes across as angry. And I I just, I struggled with her performance. It wasn't the worst. You know, it wasn't the end of the world. I I thought that she was charming and convincing in a lot of ways. But yeah, her performance for me was just okay. It was decent. So was it the performance
0: or was it the character? It was most likely the character and the script. You're probably right to point that out. So I do think that I liked some of Dorothy's like fiery moments. I liked that she stood up to the wizard when the wizard kind of went back on his word about you know, sending them home once they got the Wicked Witch of the West broom. But Brad, you're right in that Dorothy really does commit some uh, some social like faux pas in this movie. You know, at the very beginning of the movie when it's still in that black and white sepia tone and Miss Gulch is in their living room talking about how she wants to kill her dog and she straight up calls Miss Gulch a witch to her face. And I was like, why is there no punishment for this young girl for saying these words in in the presence of, uh, of her aunt and uncle in early 20th century Kansas? You'd think that that was something you shouldn't do. And then not to mention the fact that in the course of the movie, Dorothy straight up murders two people. Dorothy actually kills people in this movie. And both times, there is no punishment. And in fact, both times she kills people, everyone celebrates.
1: Wait, you're talking... Oh, when she kills both the witches? Both of
0: the witches. Like, she... But but I was watching it this time around, and, like, at the end of the movie, where she finally kills the Wicked Witch of the West, and she throws the water on her, the Wicked Witch of the West melts, and then the guard in the castle goes, You've killed her! And Dorothy's whole defense... And, I, like, I swear, this is how it goes. She goes... Well, I didn't mean to kill her. (laughs) That's it. And then they're like, hooray, Dorothy. She's she's dead. You killed her. I didn't mean to kill her. Really, I didn't. It's it's just that he was on fire. Hail to Dorothy. The Wicked Witch is dead. Hail! Hail to Dorothy. The Wicked Witch is dead. There's no punishment for her straight-up murder of two individuals.
1: Well, I mean... I think that she has plausible deniability for the fact that she was on drugs. (laughs) I mean, clearly, I I still can't get over the fact that this entire movie is a giant drug trip. And yet, for some reason,
0: 1939 America was like, yeah, let's do some acid. Sounds like fun. So... I think that the rest of the podcast is actually going to have to flip to me defending the movie because it sounds like, Brad, you really, really hate this movie a lot. And I'm not in that camp. Like, I just I, I, I don't think I've ever agreed with it being listed in, like, the 10 best films of all time. I've just never quite been there on the bandwagon of this is a great movie. It's important to us as a culture, but that doesn't necessarily make it really good. Well, Bob, can
1: you can you take a minute then and explain to me why this terrible movie is so important to American culture? Because like I understand that it's one of the earlier movies that you see in color, and it's you know, it talks about, you know, America at a desperate time and the Great Depression and all that. And, you know, I I know that the costuming was probably ahead of its time and so on and so forth, but like, why do we care about it so much? It's not a good movie.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good question to ask, Brad, and I've been trying to wrestle with that myself. And I think part of it is, you know, to give the really cynical answer, I think a lot of it is corporate America. When we talked about The Shawshank Redemption, we talked about how that movie found a sort of second life on video and then on cable, and how it did so well on cable that it changed the perception of itself on cable, because it was a box office flop. And The Wizard of Oz was considered a flop as well, but it finds a second life in the early days of television because it's probably a cheap movie to run, and it becomes a movie that's shown once a year on television as a big event, the same way that you've seen movies like The Ten Commandments, even to this day, when they show that. It's a a once-a-year event that they show that movie. And so for a whole generation of Americans You know, especially in that the generation of baby boomers who were first getting television, they grew up with The Wizard of Oz and it was fed to them as this movie is an event. This is an important movie. We're only going to show it once a year. So you can't miss it. And I think when a movie is marketed that way, I think it really does influence the way people think about it. And people became so attached to the movie, then it also takes on that life of being able to sell merchandise and being able to have you know conventions where people dress up as characters. In a lot of ways, this movie is so similar to what we've seen culturally from a movie like Star Wars. And I know I'm probably going to get you mad just comparing it to Star Wars, Brad. But in terms of cultural impact and in terms of the way people have latched onto it, I do see a lot of similarities that way.
1: Well, I think the reason that Star Wars was such a deep cultural impact was because of, you know, the greater world at the time. You were facing the Cold War, and I think America was desperate for a simple story about good versus evil. And so I think that it resonated for a lot of different reasons, but even beyond all of that, it's a really good movie. And so I understand why Star Wars has a cultural impact, and I would agree with you that The Wizard of Oz has had a similar type of cultural impact with, you know, the types of fans it might attract. But I just don't understand it because when I watch this movie, it's not a great movie. And, uh, you know, I'm coming across very strongly right now. Are there good parts to this movie? Yes. Like the music is fun. The acting is honestly overall pretty good. Outside of some of the bit characters like Glinda, the acting is pretty decent by the main characters. I really love the Scarecrow, especially. He gives a really heartfelt and convincing performance. So I I don't want to come across fully as a, this movie is complete garbage, but I I guess one of the reasons I'm hating on it is because I don't understand why the culture loves this movie so much when it's just an okay, meh kind of movie.
0: Brad, and now you understand how I feel about Star Wars, A New Hope. Star
1: Wars (laughs) is such a better
0: movie than Wizard of Oz. Please agree with me on that. So Brad. Ugh. So I think you brought up a lot of good points, Brad, and this is such a topsy-turvy episode because of our strong feelings about this movie that I think we're going to have to come back after the break and do a lot of the stuff that we normally do before the break. I want to talk about the performances. I want to talk about uh, the music in the movie. I want to talk about the cinematography because on a technical level, I was blown away by a lot of things that happened in this movie, and I think it's worth talking about those things. But before we get into that, what do you say we press pause we uh, calm ourselves down a little bit and we try this Redbreast 15. Let's get to it. All right, so today we are checking out Redbreast 15 year. Now, if you've been following along ever since the end of last season, we have been working our way through this sampler trio of Redbreast. Uh, It is an Irish whiskey. It's a very high-end Irish whiskey. And we were able to get this sampler for, I think, $15 of just 50 milliliter samples of their 12-year, their Lestow edition, and then the 15-year. And it seemed overpriced when I bought it at $15. But looking at the price tags on Redbreast, I actually think I made out okay on the deal. Brad and I liked the 12, didn't like the price tag. Brad and I kind of liked Lestow really didn't like the price tag and now we're into what is considered like the Cadillac of Redbreast the Redbreast lineup which is their 15 year and as you can imagine I'm sure this one is going to have an even higher price tag on it Brad what are your thoughts on the Redbreast line so far
1: I have been really intrigued by the Redbreast line I I struggle with the price, it's really, really expensive. It's a good whiskey. Like I, I get why they want to charge as much money as they do, because we all like making money. You know, I, I don't I don't begrudge them for making a pretty penny off of this stuff. I
0: just know that they won't be making a pretty penny off of me. <laughs> I think that's a good way to put it. So we've poured out our red breast fifteen, uh not down the drain, but into glasses. And Brad <laughs> Brad, I want to know I'm glad, I'm glad you I'm glad you clarified yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose of Redbreast 15?
1: Honestly, this one smells more like scotch than any of the other two. There's something about it that it's it's not peatiness, but there's kind of like a sea salt to this mm. whiskey that I'm really interested in.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I would say that it smells more like scotch, though, is the thing. It definitely smells different than the other two. I don't think it has as much of that smoky peaty. Scent to it as the other two do, and I actually think in a lot of ways this might be the most subtle of the three. There's not as much of a nose as there was on the Lestal. I'm getting, I'm definitely getting butterscotch, and I think Brad, that might be where you're getting your scotch comparison because it's a, it's a almost a toffee kind of sweet smell to it. And then I get a few little fruit notes, like I, I, I have some pear on this. I don't know if you're picking that up, Brad. But I'm kind of disappointed in the nose on this.
1: I actually really like this nose. I I really like the kind of sweet sea salt uh, nose that I'm getting. I'm going to go ahead and give it an eight on the nose.
0: Yeah, I'm only going to give it a six and a half. So I'm hoping that it tastes better than it smells. Why don't we give it a sip, Brad?
1: Ooh, that literally tastes like a salted caramel cheesecake.
0: That is really good. Yeah, I don't get any cheesecake on this. Um, I will say that the very first thing I just jotted down is that this is more bourbon-y in taste than the other two. The notes that I'm getting on this remind me of bourbon. Like, it doesn't taste exactly like a bourbon, but it's sweet. It has those spices throughout. I think you're right, Brad. There's definitely caramel to it, and that's something that we didn't get on either one of the other two red breasts. So... I guess calling it bourbony wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing to do. Oh, dude, this is good stuff. All right, well, we'll see what you think in a couple minutes here when we okay. get to price. <laughs>
1: Nine hundred dollars. <laughs> All right, so yeah, honestly, I'm not really getting the bourbon comparison, Bob. I I do recognize that it is on the sweeter end, but I'm really I'm really delving strong into that sea salt type of flavor, and I guess I did say caramel but man, this is a really, really good tasting whiskey that I'm going to give a nine
0: out of 10 on the taste. A nine. Wow. Yeah. Brad, I know that you like Irish whiskey better than any variety of whiskey. This one's not doing it for me. I think I'm going to give this a seven on the taste. I did like it. I liked the sweetness that, that went along with it. Um, it didn't have that butterscotch note. It definitely was more caramel. And I think that's, I think the fact that those two different things are going on in it and I'm not picking either one of them up on the nose or the taste is kind of throwing me off a little bit. So I'm going to give it a seven. All right. So on the finish, Brad, I, I thought that this definitely got bitter on the finish. But in a way that almost reminds me, you know, we talk sometimes about tannins in in the, in the barrels on some of our whiskeys. And I definitely get oak on this. It dries your mouth out and it has those bitter notes in the way in a way that reminds me of a really dry wine. It doesn't have wine like wine flavor to it, but it kind of does the same thing in my mouth. I don't know if does that make sense to you? I I
1: think it's an interesting comparison to wine. I would agree that it has some kind of nice depth to it that would remind me of a dry wine, but I didn't think it dried out my mouth in that way. I thought that it left a really pleasant amount of liquid on my palate as weird as of a thing that as that is to say, it was really nice and smooth all the way through the finish. I'm not really getting all that bitterness that you're talking about. I, I still taste that sea salt, um, kind of cheesecakey type of taste to it. I'm going to give it a nine and a half on the finish. Oh my gosh. I
0: am really enjoying hey, this. Hey, we're going to be, like I'm telling you right now, man, we are going to be very, very divided on this. I'm not, it's not that I'm not enjoying this, it's just not wowing me the way it's wowing you. I'm not a fan of the taste on the finish, but I am a fan of the length of the finish. I think you're right, Brad, in that you're talking about, like, the amount of moisture that it leaves on your mouth. I do think it dried my mouth a little bit in terms of having those dry, like, wine, tannin notes. Um, But it was a long-lasting finish, and I really liked that. And... I'm just going to give it a six and a half on the finish. So we're already three, three whole points removed from each other on finish. And that brings us to overall balance. Now, again, I thought the nose was unremarkable. I thought the taste was really good. I thought the finish was unremarkable. So I'm going to disappoint you again, Brad. I'm only going to give this a six and a half on balance as well.
1: (laughs) Bob, I think that from start to finish, this is one of the most well-balanced whiskeys I've ever had. And I'm going to represent that in my score by giving it a 10 out of 10 on balance. Oh my gosh. That, like this is such a well-balanced whiskey. I get that sea salt note all the way through and yet there's a depth and complexity to it as I move it through my palate that makes me
0: fall in love with this whiskey. All right, so there have been times where Brad and I have each disliked the same whiskey and I'm usually more measured in the way that I assign scores. And so like I'll give a whiskey you know, an overall 25 out of 50 or whatever it is. And Brad will come in and say, "My overall score is a 1.9 out of 50." And I say, <laughs> "Brad, how could you possibly come out to a score that low?" Yeah. And today, I'm going to do something that I have never ever done before, and I am in the Brad G role today. <laughs> because our last category is value. Now, Redbreast 12, I think was 69.99 for a fifth. Redbreast Lestow, when we just drank that a few weeks ago, I believe was $79.99, and we said, How dare they? Redbreast fifteen, Brad, in the state of Ohio, for a fifth, will set you back one hundred and nine dollars and ninety nine cents. <laughs> which means, Brad, at retail price, This is the second most expensive whiskey we have had on the podcast behind Bardstown Bourbon Company's Pfeiffer Pavitt Reserve.
1: Well, Bob, you know what to get me for my birthday.
0: So let me ask you that. Before you just give it a score, Brad, as a guy who clearly likes this whiskey, do you think you like it enough that if it was just for you, that you would buy yourself a $110 bottle of this whiskey?
1: Does my wife know that I'm buying it or am I buying it with (laughs) cash?
0: Um I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> I
1: would not buy this for
0: $109. That's so much money, Bob. Yeah, this is this is just ridiculous. And Brad, as I said, I actually think that I might like this the least of the three red breast, which is really fascinating to me. It's not that I dislike it, but just on a flavor perspective, it it's not knocking my socks off. So clearly I would never spend $109 on this. And I am appalled that Redbreast thinks that anyone should spend $110 on this. And I am going to give this a one out of ten on value. My first ever one. Ooh. Yeah.
1: Basil Hayden's uh Took that for me getting, you know, ranked one in a category. If this was the price of the listau, you know, if this was like 60 to 80 dollars, I would probably give this like a six or a seven on value. um, because that's still way expensive. But I would say that the quality is coming closer to matching the price point if it was eighty dollars. But at $109, that is so much money. I'm gonna go ahead and give it a four out of
0: ten on value. So here's what I want to say, even before we just say our final scores and our average is that this is how important value is in our eyes, because Brad literally came out and said, this is one of the best whiskeys and and most well-balanced whiskeys he's ever had. This man was giving nines and tens across the board, and still they priced this so astronomically that even Brad, who loved it, has to admit this is only in his eyes a four out of ten in value. I, I just I know that that the whiskey manufacturers are not listening to this podcast, but there has to be something to be said about a guy like you, Brad, who loves this that much and still will say I will never buy this for myself.
1: Yeah. And the problem is this isn't a whiskey that I want to buy and like only drink when I birth a child. This is a whiskey I would want to drink, you know, once or twice a month. Sit down, have a glass of whiskey, watch a movie. But I don't feel like I could do that if I spent a hundred and nine dollars on the bottle. That that's just insane.
0: Yeah, I agree. And even with my score of one, I'm coming out to a 27 and a half on this. So this this <laughs> well, here's the thing, Brad. Just hear me out. It was already above average, even without the value score. And if this had been a value of, you know, a six, a seven, we'd be talking in the 34, 35 range, which for a guy who was unimpressed with this is a really good score. This is a good whiskey, but I literally gave it a one out of 10. And and I think that's the thing. The big takeaway from Redbreast, all three of them, is that they are just astronomically priced and I can't justify the price tag on any of them.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you, Bob, on the overall analysis. However, I am coming out to a
0: 40.5 out of 50. So we are 13 whole points off or 26% in our analysis of this one.
1: Yeah, we are in vastly different planes when it comes to this whiskey. Which doesn't totally surprise me because I, I know what your preferences are in bourbon. I mean whiskey. <laughs> in general, though, this is just a darn good whiskey. And I am so glad that we got this sampler. I will say, I hope you could say that spending fifteen dollars on this sampler was worth it. Oh my gosh. I feel like I dodged a bullet. <laughs> yeah. I, I and I would agree with you. Like a and I think what you dodged is a
0: seventy, eighty, and a hundred and ten dollar bullet. Yeah, absolutely. So we're coming out to an average of a 34 out of 50. And I know, Brad, that's going to be kind of a blow to you because you really liked this one. And I'm okay with this being there. I just would always say the caveat is don't go spend your money on this. If someone is pouring this out for you and asking if you want some, absolutely. I would recommend for that. If you're asking me if you should ever buy this, like Brad said, if you're about to have a child, But other than those huge life moments, I don't know that I could ever recommend buying this.
1: If you have like six friends that are looking to splurge on a really good whiskey and you want to fully split the cost, yeah, go for it. I highly recommend it. Do it. But if you're just buying this by yourself and you're not, you know, fabulously wealthy uh, like Bob and I already are because of this podcast, I am very sadly going to say that I, I don't recommend this whiskey and only
0: because of the price tag. Well, there you have it. That was the Redbreast Sampler and Redbreast 15 in particular. Brad, what do you say? We get back into talking about The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, let's get to it. All right, so that was Redbreast 15, a whiskey that Brad clearly liked more than I did and even still did not recommend. I'm really
1: sad about that. And you know what else I realized that I was really sad of? was that the last sampler we got was the Glenmorangie sampler. And that one was so, so good that the Redbreast just kind of paled in comparison.
0: Brad, you could literally buy a bottle of quinta Rubin and a bottle of either La Santa or Nectar Dor, and it would be about the same price as a bottle of Redbreast 15.
1: Yeah, and one might say that you would
0: have two-fifths of really good whiskey <laughs> instead of one-fifth. Hashtag math major. (laughs) All right. So, Brad, it's time for us to get into our one of our favorite segments here on the show where we read one star reviews of the movies we're reviewing. And this segment is called Hot Takes. Hot Takes. So our first one star review is from IMDb user Riddler 2. And their review is titled Most Overrated Movie Ever. Mary Poppins, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Sound of Music, Shrek, Back to the Future. All timeless family movies, they do not get enough credit. But The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, more like The Wonderfully Bad Wizard of Oz, is loved by. Wait, what? Wait, did he actually write that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yes, that's in parentheses here. (laughs) More like The Wonderfully Bad Wizard of Oz, is loved by all, not by me. For the millionth time, Channel 4 showed the film on TV this afternoon and I just had to see if my opinion would change, but oh no, certainly not. Now I loved this movie when I was tiny, but then I just went with the adventure of it all. Now just a pile of rubbish with a vomit-inducing performance from Judy Garland. (laughs) Vomit-inducing! The most cliched story in the world and really poor visual effects. I mean, A Yellow Slab is the Yellow Brick Road. I can understand the reasons why everyone loves this film, because they watched it as a child and then had to show their children straight away. Do not, I repeat, do not show this to children. They will be scarred for life, and it will be your own fault. The constant singing is just enough to drive anyone with the brain mad. We're off to see The Wizard is sung over and over again repeatedly, with no sense of pacing or movement. Dorothy's really whiny and annoying after a while. The Wicked Witch has always terrified me and will scare any children who watch this. Just do not watch this pile of vomit-inducing rubbish. It is 76 years old now. Everyone has suffered through this pile of vomit-inducing rubbish enough. There is a better Oz film out there, Oz the Great and Powerful from Disney, which does not even need to be compared to this vomit-inducing rubbish. One star.
1: Wow. I guess I'm going to have to change my IMDb
0: username (laughs) now that everybody knows it. (laughs) He really, I guess, my only question would be like whether he thinks this is a vomit inducing movie.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say he really wanted to hammer home the point that he threw up multiple times while watching this movie on Channel 4.
0: I don't even know what to say to that, Brad. Yeah,
1: I the thing is, he has some decent critiques in there about the singing, but Judy Garland is not terrible in this movie. I will wholeheartedly agree with him that this movie can scar people for life. The flying monkeys are terrifying. The witch is terrifying. The The way that the witch who got crushed by the house, when the slippers disappear off her feet and her socks like curl up in on themselves, that's like terrifying.
0: Yeah, this movie definitely has some really dark things going
1: on. So yeah, as a as a child, I don't know why this is a movie for children because I really do think it can be horrifying. But I also love that he said that people watch this movie as children and then want to show it to their children straight away.
0: All right, Brad. So we have spent a good portion of this podcast talking about our nitpicks and our general dislike for this movie. But I want to take a minute and I want to talk about things that I really did like with the movie and... I liked most of these performances. You know, I I really, really loved Ray Bolger as the Scarecrow. I know, Brad, you already talked about the Scarecrow's performance, the physical comedy that he's doing, the ability to make himself look sort of weightless. I really loved everything Ray Bolger did as the Scarecrow in this movie.
1: Yeah, the Scarecrow was really wonderful. You know, I... If I had to rank the three, you know, the Scarecrow, Lion, and and Tin Man, I really love the Scarecrow the most. I like the Tin Man a lot, and I really despise the Lion. Like, there's something about the Lion that I really just don't like about his performance. He just comes across as schmoozing and kind of gross to me, and, and I really hated him. But other than that, I really like the Scarecrow and the Tin Man a lot. They come across with a lot of sincerity.
0: Yeah, and I actually really liked the lion on this watch. When I was a kid, the lion was definitely my least favorite character as well. And I always hated that that song they give him when he does If I Were King of the Forest. It, I felt that it always kind of like grinds the movie to a halt. But this time around, I really appreciated the lion because he he really does. The guy that plays him, Burt Lahr, he really does have this like old vaudevillian kind of thing going on. And he gets a lot of jokes like actual jokes in the script. And I thought that he landed most of them.
1: Here, here, go away and let us alone. Oh, scared, huh? Afraid, huh? <laughs> How long can you stay fresh in that can? <laughs> Come on, get up and fight, you shivering junkyard. Put your hands up, you lopsided bag of hay. Now that's getting personal, lion. Yes, get up and teach him a lesson. Well, what's wrong with you teaching him?
0: Uh, well, well, I hardly know him. <laughs> well, I'll get you anyway, pee And Brad, like I said, I think all three of Dorothy's sidekicks in this movie are really, really great. I think that Margaret Hamilton as the Wicked Witch of the West is great. And I think that Frank Morgan who plays five different roles in this movie, including the wizard, is also great. Like, I have no problem with any of the actors in this movie.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting, because I would probably agree with you. For the most part, other than Glinda, the the fairy good witch of the North, whatever she is, she is terrible, dude. Like, really, really bad. But other than her, all of the actors in this movie are pretty good. Like, I'd give them all, like... Probably like a C-plus to an A-minus type of performances.
0: All right, so moving on from the performances, just real quickly, I do want to talk about the direction of this movie. This movie was in production for a long, long time, and it was in production at the same time that MGM was also making Gone with the Wind, which we're going to watch next week. And Gone with the Wind also had a troubled shoot, and they were moving directors in and out of both movies. And so even though the majority of this film was directed by Victor Fleming, for parts of the movie... It was also directed by King Vidor, um, who did most of the early stuff in Kansas. But when I was watching it last night, I definitely noticed similarities in some of the camera movements between this movie and Gone with the Wind, which Victor Fleming also directed most of. And I was really blown away by that opening scene in Munchkinland. And how much they moved the camera and how the camera was on a crane for most of the time. And they were kind of looping around, showing you the geography of Munchkinland. And then at the end where they're sending her off, you know, you're off to see the wizard. It's this really long tracking shot that pulls back with her all the way down the yellow brick road. And it reminds me of this crane shot that we're going to see in Gone with the Wind next week. From a technical standpoint, I mean, the cinematography, the costumes, the color. This movie is I mean, it just leaps and bounds to me better than Stagecoach that we watched last week. I thought Stagecoach looked amateurish in comparison to how well done every technical aspect of this movie was.
1: Man, that is really interesting to me. I I think that the set piece near the end of Stagecoach is where a lot of the technical brilliance is. And I would agree that for the majority of the movie Stagecoach, you know, it's a lot of kind of stock footage of people talking to each other and so on and so forth. I guess with Wizard of Oz, I was just so distracted by the stilted dialogue and the terrible script that I really struggled to even notice those things because I was I was so painfully aware of how terrible of a script I was listening to.
0: So it took you that much out of the movie though. It
1: really did. I as I'm watching the movie and Glinda would just bluntly say, like, You must do this. Don't worry. She doesn't have power over you because you have the slippers. But if she has the slippers, you will lose that power. I'm like, "Honey, come on. Like deliver it with <laughs> deliver it with something of of like the fact that you care about this young girl." and and even and that's not even all on her the lines themselves are just terrible they they're literally force feeding you plot information that could be delivered in much better ways
0: well and this is my big problem with the movie is that what's happening in oz it, it's supposed to be a dream mm-hmm. okay and I, I understand that but in most movies or stories where a character has a dream or is experiencing some sort of fantastical elements like this then what's happening in fantasy world is supposed to be mirroring what's happening in the real world. And the Oz storyline just doesn't make sense if what's happening in Oz is supposed to be a reflection of what's happening in Kansas. The characters are kind of the same. Like, you know, the, the same people who play the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Lion are in Kansas and they talk about, you know, having a head full of straw and not being being brave versus not being brave. I understand that those people are represented. But then you have things like you're talking about, Brad, who is Glinda supposed to represent? Like if this is some sort of allegory, then like there was no Glinda in Kansas. So we have these whole other characters that are inserted. And then what's the ruby slippers supposed to represent? It's like, we, we it doesn't work as a metaphor, and it also doesn't work just from a, the standpoint of like world building. They just kind of come in and say, oh, yeah, uh, by the way, you have these ruby slippers and they're magic and no one can take them from you. But what, what what do they do? What what are they supposed to do? They give her power. Do they do something to help her journey? You know, I think back to when they, they kill the Wicked Witch of the West at the end of the movie which totally happens by coincidence. She wasn't trying to kill the Witch of the West. She was trying to put out the Scarecrow who's on fire and just happened to throw water on the Wicked Witch of the West. Like none of what happens in Oz has any real significance or works even like as a metaphor for what's happening in Dorothy's life. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Brad, that the big problem with this movie is the script. It just doesn't work.
1: Yeah, and, and there's certain parts of the script where you need to, like, learn information, and they just kind of say it bluntly. Judy Garland is like, well, I, you know, I'm not a witch, and witches are bad. And Glinda goes, no, some witches are good. And Judy's like, okay. And then she's like, oh, well, this this, wic- <laughs> this witch in the West, what is she? Oh, she's wicked, but don't worry, I'm good. Oh, okay. Uh, like, I, you're just told... Oh, this witch is wicked, and this one is good, and these ruby slippers are magical, but we're never going to talk about the magic that they give you. I was so brutally aware of this script that, like I said, it really forced me away from some of the more
0: beautiful elements of the movie. I think back to the episode that we did on Singing in the Rain, and I gave that movie a 9, and I've I've been second-guessing it ever since. But my rationale for giving Singing in the Rain a nine was that we all remember the songs and the musical numbers and the dances. And I think sometimes we forget how some of the scenes in between those can really drag. And The Wizard of Oz is, I think, that example taken to the extreme because all of the songs in this movie are great. I love the wordplay. I love the melody. I think that there's some really complex melody going on in this and, and... The music, the score is phenomenal. And if this was just a collection of clips of people singing the songs, I think I might actually like the movie better. And I think that's what what really bothers me about it is that I love so much of what's happening musically in this movie. But the plot, the story is just it's just lacking.
1: Well, I feel like we've spent a lot of time on how much we hate the plot and the story. But I'm kind of curious, was there anything else that you really liked about the movie, Bob? Like, what was a scene in the movie you loved or a specific character you liked? Was there anything else you really enjoyed about the
0: movie? I'm always going to give a plug for Judy Garland. I think that she has always been underrated as an actress. And yes, I do think she's kind of doing a little girl act here. But her ability to emote on screen, you know, when she's crying in the witch's lair, like, that's real and her abilities just as a vocalist were always apparent and for this you know 16 year old girl when they're making this movie to sing over the rainbow which has become the most iconic song in a film of all time I, she she blows me away and i i will forever still continue to watch the wizard of oz if for no other reason than judy garland
1: yeah i'm i'm actually going to highlight a performance as well it's not going to be judy garland's I was blown away by, as an adult, how terrified I still was of the Wicked Witch of the West. Her performance is so scary. And not just when she's the Wicked Witch. When she is sitting in, you know, M's house and she is telling Dorothy that she's going to kill Toto. I was terrified of her right then and there in that living room as when she's just a normal person. I thought that her performance was utterly convincing
0: and really terrifying in a lot of ways. Yeah, and a lot of the actors on this movie really, really dedicated themselves to the making of this film. You know, the Cowardly Lion's costume weighed like 100 pounds, I think, because it was really made out of pelts. And it really weighed him down. And once you got into the costume, you were in that costume all day. The Tin Man, who was played by Jack Haley... Actually, he was not the first choice. It's a really famous story in Hollywood that this role was cast with another actor named Buddy Ebsen. And when they were doing the first few weeks of shooting, the Tin Man's makeup was actually an aluminum powder and he inhaled so much of this aluminum powder that it put him in the hospital and he couldn't breathe like at all. And so they just quietly fired him while he was recovering and replaced him with Jack Haley. And they turned the makeup into an aluminum paste so that it would stick on his face and not get in his lungs. But, but going back to Margaret Hamilton as the witch, you know, she had a really, really freak accident on the set in the scene in Munchkin land where she disappears. And, you know, she goes down through what's a trap door in the set and a fireball comes up on one of the takes where they filmed that someone queued the fire too early and she had third degree burns on her face because the Ooh. makeup they used for her had copper in it and it conducted so much heat that Ooh. she she had to take 3 months off of filming this movie to recover before she could come back so you know we're talking about the studio days where they did not give as much care to their actors and i think it just goes to show you how dedicated margaret hamilton was and a lot of the actors in this film were to turning in the performances that they did.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm glad they didn't just fire her while she was recovering in the hospital. (laughs) That's like one of the shadiest things I've ever heard. Oh, I'm sorry that we poisoned you. Guess you're just going to get fired now and we're going to hire somebody else and give him better makeup.
0: Well, and also, you know, with Dorothy's track record, I guess they're both lucky they didn't just get offed. Yeah, for real, though. So, Brad, we've talked a lot about this movie. I am anxious to hear what kind of a score you give it. Uh, So I'll turn it over to you, sir. Give this movie a score out of 10. And would you recommend? I am going to give The Wizard of Oz a
1: 5 out of 10. This is just a struggle of a movie for me. It has its endearing moments. You know, the, the performances are overall pretty solid, you know, with a few standout exceptions. But I cannot recommend The Wizard of Oz to anybody. I, I don't think that it is worth your time. I don't think it's a good movie. I, I think it is well below average. And I, I, yeah, I am really, really sad that I had to watch this movie.
0: Well, and I do think that it's still, it's still very fair of you to give it a five. You know, I, I'm glad that you're not just giving it a one because you didn't like it. And for myself... I really struggled with what score to give this, and I think a lot of it comes down to what do I honestly think of this movie versus how much are people going to get mad at my score for this movie because everyone loves this movie, you know? And so I thought for a while about maybe I'll give it an eight because I don't think it's perfect, but it's still a classic movie. But honestly, I just don't like it enough to give it an eight. I think it's a good movie. I think a lot of it holds up in terms of the music. I do think it's still worth watching. I would still recommend But I've never found this movie to be as great as other quote-unquote classic films. So I'm going to give this movie a 7.5. I think it's a worthwhile film. I think it's like a three-star movie. But Brad, this really puts us into hot take territory because our average comes out to a 6.25, which is a very low score considering what we normally score movies. And it's for what might be the most popular film of all time. So I feel like... We should expect some feedback on this one.
1: Yeah, I am really curious to hear what people have to say. And I'm honestly very curious to hear what the split would be between older adults who love this movie and younger people that are our age who watch this movie. Because I feel like a lot of my friends that I've ever talked to about this movie are like, yeah, I watched that when I was a kid and I was terrified of the flying monkeys. And I'm really curious if that would sway the younger
0: generation's opinion of this movie. Well, Brad, this is one of those areas where IMDb actually really comes in handy. On IMDb, this movie only has an 8.0. So it's not even in the top 250. And when you click on the overall rating for the movie, it breaks it down by demographic. Females over the age of 45 score this movie higher than anybody else at an 8.7. And the lowest scores are for people between the ages of 18 and 29 who average about a 7.8. So there's a huge spread in what people think about this movie. And I think it kind of it kind of goes to show what you're talking about, Brad. I don't know that this movie is going to continue to be the pinnacle of classic films for coming generations. I don't know a lot of people who show this movie to their kids anymore. And it really does seem like something that was cherished by generations past as part of their childhood that isn't really making the transition to younger generations.
1: And if it is making the transition, I think it's because of remakes like the Broadway musical Wicked and other, you know, such transformations of the movie into the modern lens. But I would agree with you, Bob. I don't think it's going to continue to hold up very well
0: as the generations move along. But we want to hear what you think. Maybe you totally disagree with Brad and I on this, and you want to rake us over the coals a little bit. We are happy to hear you out on this. You can find us on social media. Brad, where can they find us?
1: You can find us at
0: filmwhiskey.com. With an E. And
1: we will be on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
0: Or you could give us a call on our call-in line. I'm really excited to hear some people give feedback on this film. If you have a take on The Wizard of Oz, please call and leave a voicemail. We'll play it on air and interact with it. Our number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that's 216-800-5923.
1: And I just want to say one last thing. Guys, we are still a new podcast. So if you have anybody that you want to share your frustration with over our take on The Wizard of Oz, tell them to listen to the episode and get angry at us with you. If you're really enjoying the podcast, give us a like, show us some love on iTunes. You know, those five-star ratings really go a long way. We're just so thankful that we get to put any of this content on the air. You know, we love movies. We love whiskey. But even more than that, Bob, I think
0: we could agree that we love sharing all of this with film and whiskey nation absolutely and we're looking forward to doing it again next week when we'll be back finishing our series on films from 1939 with the granddaddy of them all gone with the wind for the film and whiskey podcast i'm bob book i'm brad g we'll see you next time By the way, have you looked at the price on Redbreast 15 on the Ohio website? Nope. Don't do it. That's, that's that's all I ask of you this episode is just let me have that one moment. Okay. All right.